0: Pray with me, please. Father, we would now incline our hearts to the path of wisdom, and yet to do that we will need Your help, for as we read in Your Word, folly is bound up in our hearts since we are children. So, Father, I pray that You would clear our eyes so that we can see. You prepare our hearts so that we can not only understand, but that we can apply to our lives timeless truths that You have revealed to us, the Word that keeps us from stumbling. May it work now in us through the power of Your Spirit. In Christ's name we ask of it. Amen. Turn in your copy of the Scriptures, if you would, please, to the book of Proverbs, chapter 7. Why do people succumb to moral failure? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I don't think that anyone gets out of bed in the morning and thinks to themselves, you know, today is the day. Today is the day that I am going to succumb to moral failure. Today is the day that I am going to make a mess of my life, to throw away my relationships, to give myself over to immorality. People don't wake up thinking like that. At least they may not put it in quite those stark terms to themselves. And yet we see all around us all the time, people in fact do make decisions to give themselves over to life-dominating sins, to affairs, to substance abuse, to improper financial dealings, to gossip and slander, to pornography, to gluttony. To the love of money and things. Decisions that destroy lives, decisions that wreck relationships, that break apart families. It's not just the worst kinds of people who do these things, but seemingly righteous people end up doing these things. Professing Christians do these things. People who, when they are confronted with an opportunity or a temptation To sin, suddenly make a decision that seems to be completely out of character with their profession of faith and how they live their lives. I don't think that King David started off his day by saying to himself, You know, I think it is a good morning to become an adulterous murderer. And yet that evening, as he walked out on his rooftop, he spies a beautiful married woman bathing. And suddenly a desire springs up in his heart that when he acts on it, leads to adultery, and to murder, and the death of a child, and chaos for a kingdom. We do the things that we do because we want the things that we want, which is dangerous for us when we realize that what our heart wants most is to satisfy the evil desires that are within, and we do what we do because we want what we want. And too often, catastrophic, life-changing moral failure is the result of doing what we want to do. Well, this is, of course, the season of New Year's resolutions, a time in which people make all kinds of well-intentioned commitments that too often are too readily abandoned, Now, I'm not saying that's you, by the way. That's other kinds of people. You are not the sort of person to give up on your New Year's resolutions. I have every confidence that this is the year in which you are going to diet your way to those six-pack abs, and this is going to be the year that you learn those three languages using Rosetta Stone. Undoubtedly, no question, this is your year. It's not you. We know that there are some commitments, some personal resolutions that we make that it really doesn't matter a whole lot when they fall by the wayside. It's not that big a deal. And yet there are other resolutions that should properly shape the whole course of our lives. They should direct how we live every day. Many of us are familiar with the personal resolutions of the 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards. He's famed for his 70 personal resolutions for living. The first begins this way, resolved, that I will do whatsoever I think most to God's glory and my good, profit, and pleasure in the whole Of my duration. A resolution to live one's life first and foremost for the glory of God is a lifelong commitment that is worth keeping. Next week, God willing, we are going to return to our foundation series in the book of Genesis. But with people still traveling for the holidays, we wanted to wait one more week before doing that. And so instead, this morning, as we stand on the precipice of a new year, I'd like to look with you at Proverbs chapter 7. As we look at this chapter, I'd like to set before us the question, why do people, even Christians, succumb to moral failure? And from our text, I'd like to propose for our consideration seven answers to that question, seven lessons that we can learn, and seven corresponding personal resolutions that should mark the life of every Christian who is endeavoring to live their life for the glory of God. That's our task this morning. So to briefly set the context for us, Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature of the Scriptures. These are proverbial sayings that have been written by King Solomon for the edification and instruction of his sons. And Solomon's purpose is to lay before his son and before us the path of wisdom and to urge us correspondingly to avoid going down the path of folly. That is the main emphasis of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 7 presents us with a scene. It's a kind of morality play where we're able to observe the actions of a fool and learn from his mistakes, to learn from his example, which is in itself an important truth for us to understand. Wise people learn from the mistakes made by others. So this morning, seven lessons from the fool and seven resolutions for living. Why do people, even Christians, frequently succumb to moral failure. Reason number one, because they are not submitted to the Word. Beginning in verse 1, My son, keep my words. Treasure up my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, You are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. So Solomon begins by giving his son a set of imperative commands. And these instructions are imperative because, as Solomon says, keeping these commands is going to be a matter of his son's spiritual life and death. He says, Keep my commandments and live. Now, if you were walking down the street, someone were to stop you and hand you a note which read, If you want to live, Read this carefully. I'd suggest that you'd probably read the rest of what that note had to say with a fair amount of attention. You'd want to know, what does this message contain that is going to keep me alive? And that's essentially how Solomon starts off this particular instruction to his son. Son, if you want to live, listen. Listen to what I have to say. And the first vital instruction that he gives is keep And treasure the words. Hold on to the word of God. The word keep is the word that occurs most in these first five verses. Keep my words. Keep my commandments. Keep my teaching. It's the same word that occurred all the way back in Genesis chapter 2 that God gives to Adam in the garden. To work and to keep or to guard the sanctuary. In other words, Solomon is telling his son and he's telling us if you want to live You have to keep, you have to guard God's Word within you as you would your most treasured possession. The same way that Adam was intended to keep and guard the sanctuary of God, we are to keep and to hold on to the Word of God in our hearts. It's not only the most valuable possession that we have, but God's Word is also what will preserve your life. Because notice down in verse 5 that the beauty is in keeping or guarding God's Word within us, that God's word in turn is what keeps us from sin. He says, You are to keep God's word, verse 5, in order to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Solomon is here introducing us to the concept of the adulterous woman. And it really, in this chapter, the adulterous woman is, is a broader metaphor for temptation. It is not simply the sin of adultery that Solomon is concerned with. Adultery here stands for temptation. If you would be kept from sin, you need to keep the word, which will in turn keep you from temptation. Solomon therefore says we should bind it to our fingers. Write it on the tablet of our hearts. In other words, Scripture needs to be always near at hand to the Christian. It should govern what we do with our hands. It should keep our actions in check. It needs to be written on our hearts. We need to be mastered in our desires by the Word of God. If we would resist the temptation to succumb to sin, it begins by keeping, treasuring, and living out the Word of God. You see, those who succumb to moral failure are weak in the Word. So, resolution number one, resolved to be saturated in and submitted to the Word of God. The Scriptures are the timeless, living and active Word of God to us. This Word contains power. It contains the the power that when we read it by the work of the Holy Spirit, through this Word, we are able to have renewed minds that result in transformed lives. So that we will think differently and desire differently and then ultimately live differently. So we can listen to all of the clever podcasts that we want to, and that's good. There's plenty of good ones out there. We can read all of the Christian self-help books that we want to, and I'm sure many of them are helpful. We can read all of the great works of theology that are out there, and plenty of them have much wisdom to offer us, and yet none of those things are half as necessary or half as helpful as the simple, daily, quiet discipline of the Christian who spends a little time in prayer and a little time in thoughtful reading and meditation in the Word of God. We want quick fixes. We want flashy solutions. We want sages on stages who are offering us all of the self-help tools for living. And yet, for the Christian, a submitted life begins in the simple, quiet discipline of regular time with God in His Word. Being regularly, mindfully, and deeply in the Word will help guard our hearts against sin. Psalm 119, verse 9. Question, how can a young man keep his way pure? Answer, by guarding it according to your Word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your Word in my heart Purpose so that I might not sin against you. So that presents us with the question What is our habit of personal time with God in His Word? How committed to it are we really? And when we are in the Word, how are we in the Word? Are we there out of a sense of religious obligation, as a rote duty, as something to check off our daily to do? are we deeply, mindfully in the Word of God? Know this, if we are not regularly in the Word of God and therefore if we are not being transformed by the renewing of our mind through the Word, then we are opening ourselves up for moral failure. Why do people, even Christians, succumb to moral failure? Reason number two, because they are immature and foolish. Verse six, for at the window of my house i have looked out through my lattice and i have seen among the simple i have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense passing along the street near her corner taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness solomon introduces us here to one of the two primary characters in this morality lesson the Character of the young fool. In fact, Solomon emphasizes those two characteristics about this man. He is young and he is a fool. And this young fool keeps company with others of his kind. If you ever want to find this man, you have only need to go out and find where all of the other simpletons are gathered and you will find him there. This man is a doofus and he's hanging out. Actually, I don't know. Is plural doofus doofuses or doofi? Dufi. He's hanging out with the other Dufi. That's what he's doing. He's a knucklehead, and he's habitually around other knuckleheads. That's where this man is. Now, as we think about these two characteristics, his youth and his folly, it's important for us to note that these two things do not necessarily have to go together. One can be young and be wise beyond your years, and correspondingly, one can be old and lacking in all good sense. But it is certainly a very bad combination indeed to be both young without any life experience and to be fool, to be immature. And worse yet, to be company with others who are equally immature. Which is another lesson, by the way. Folly loves company. Immature and foolish people are the way that they are in part because they are unwilling to listen and keep company with wiser, more mature people. There is a reason why birds of a feather flock together. You can always find a fool in company of other fools. Because the defining character quality of the immature and the foolish is that they are arrogant and unteachable. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. You want to know what a fool says? He's happy to tell you. It's all right there. He knows better. In fact, the world is just dying to know what he has to say. He's not interested in hearing what other people's opinions are. He's not interested in learning from anyone else. Everyone else should be his or her student. He has everything that the world needs. Proverbs 12 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. There is nothing that you can tell an immature fool. Because he thinks he knows better already. Which means that not only are they heedless to danger, but they are unwilling to listen to those who are warning them you're going down a dangerous way. They're going to run headlong towards sin, the sin that will destroy them, refusing all along the way to listen to everyone who is trying to prevent them from going down this path. So here's resolution number two for us. Resolves. To be mature. I'll lovingly remind us that spiritual maturity and age are not one and the same thing. One can be old and can be immature and foolish at the same time. So the question then is how do we become mature if not simply through advancing age, through the passing of time, through the accruing of life experience? How do we become spiritually mature people? Let me briefly suggest to us three practical ways that we grow in spiritual maturity. Number one, we grow in maturity when we learn to fear the Lord and to delight in His Word. Scriptures tell us that it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of all wisdom. In contrast, the Scriptures tell us that the fool is the person who says in his heart, there is no God. In other words, the fool is not interested in the wisdom from above. The fool delights in his own understanding. He doesn't want to know what God has to say. He doesn't want to know God's way. His own way is best in his own eyes. That is the basic character of the fool. But the starting point for wisdom and maturity begin when we submit ourselves to God and to His Word rather than in foolishly believing that our way is the best. Second, we grow in maturity when we learn to humble ourselves and to receive wise counsel from others. The fool isn't interested in wisdom from other people. The fool is convinced that they have all the answers. They're always right in their own eyes. They delight in expressing their own heart rather than listening and receiving counsel. Have you ever noticed that that very trait is shared by nearly all toddlers? Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. That's what the scriptures tell us. Truth be told, that is a trait that is shared by plenty of adults too. We think that admitting our need for help or for guidance and wisdom is a sign of weakness or incompetence on our part. When in reality, asking others for help and for guidance and wisdom is actually a sign of maturity. That's what mature people do. So question for us, when is the last time that you sought and then applied wise counsel from someone else in your life? What kind of listener are you? Would those closest to you say that you are humble and teachable and correctable? Or like the immature fool, are you the one who is constantly giving advice to anyone who will listen because you think you figured everything out? Are you able to listen or are you always the one talking? Number three, we grow in maturity when we move from fluff a substance. The fool in our text is hanging out with other simpletons. There are no iron sharpening iron relationships that are happening there. There's just a pooling of mutual ignorance and stupidity. But at some point in the process of learning how to ride a bike, the training wheels have to come off. At some point in learning how to swim, the swimmer has to move from the shallows into deeper water. At some point, beginning phonics books give way to simple chapter books, which give way to novels, which then give way to classics, and then to epics, and then to the great works of literature and humanities. You move on, you grow up, you develop in maturity. The point is this, for the Christian, the writer of the Hebrews tells us that if you have been a Christian for some time, and yet you still need to be on milk, if you still desire milk, then the verdict on your condition is in you're a baby. You're a spiritual infant. Now, I trust that in this room there is a whole spectrum of where we are in our journey with Christ. And so if you are here this morning and you are a relatively new believer, then the milk is exactly what is most nutritious for you. God has given it to you in order that you may grow up in Christ. And so praise the Lord that you desire the milk of the Word. That is a good thing. But if you're on the other side of the spectrum and if you've been a believer for many years and yet you still can only tolerate the milk, well then something's wrong. If discipleship is working, eventually the discipled need to become the disciplers. The immature can take only the fluffy stuff. The mature have moved on into the deeper substance. So where are we? Wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, what is the next step that you need to be taking in your growth and discipleship? Whoever you are, wherever you are in your walk with Christ, let's all resolve to be get together, to be growing together in maturity, to be growing up together in Christ. Why do people, even Christians, succumb to moral failure? Reason number three, because they put themselves in positions that are ripe for moral compromise. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. We're going to find out in just a moment that the woman who is hanging out at the corner in whose house this young simpleton is walking by is the same adulterous woman that Solomon warned his son about in the preceding verses. She's known, apparently, for her loose and lewd behavior. She has a reputation in the community to be wary of. And the fool is passing near her corner. He's taking a path home that's going to lead right by her front door. So notice two mistakes that the fool makes here. Number one, he's in the wrong place. He's in the wrong place. He places himself in jeopardy by taking the path that is going to lead right by her corner. This is a time and a place to take the long way home. To do what is necessary to protect yourself from being in a position that is likely to lead to spiritual compromise. Proverbs 5 verse 8 says of the adulterous woman, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door to your ho- her house. I'll remind you, the adulterous woman in the book of Proverbs, a stand-in for temptation. Keep away from temptation's door. Go the other way. In other words, it's saying take a different path. But because this man is a fool, he takes the way, he takes the path that's going to put him directly in harm's way. But second, notice that not only is he in the wrong place, but he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Notice the stress that Solomon places here on the setting. He took the path that would lead by her corner in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness, twilight, evening, time of night, darkness. How many more times in the space of one verse can Solomon simply get out the fact that this guy is out and about at a time in which he is most likely to be most vulnerable to temptation? This guy's in the wrong place, he's there at the wrong time, he's about to be there with the wrong person, and in consequence, he's in deep trouble. So here's resolution for us number 3, resolved to walk in the light and be above reproach. The wise take an aggressive and proactive approach to temptation. They don't wait for temptation to come to them. They see temptation coming and they take steps in advance, meaning that they seek to avoid putting themselves in places, in situations, in times that are going to be ripe for disaster. What does that look like, practically speaking? Well, the person who struggles with substance abuse should take the long way home from work each day if the short way home is going to lead by the bar or the liquor store where they have fallen into sin before. Or the young dating couple should avoid being in situations where they are alone together late at night and are going to be tempted to compromise physical standards for themselves. Where the man and the woman who struggles with pornography should not work on the computer home alone late at night. And maybe they shouldn't even have a smartphone if that's been a dominating issue of sin in their life. That seems extreme, you might be thinking. Not really. I don't care how much we think that we need these things. A smartphone late at night or access to a computer in the middle of the night. Those things are not worth your marriage or your soul. They simply aren't. And if you think that is a radical concept, remember what Jesus himself says. That if your right hand or if your eye is causing you to sin, cut it off. Gouge it out. It's better for you to walk into heaven missing an arm or an eye than to walk into hell with all your limbs intact. Radical amputation, not literally of your body, is not to dismember your physical body, but to take an aggressive approach to weed out sin in our lives. I frequently find myself struggling with insomnia. And I'll be tossing around at one or two in the morning and usually I'll have a paper that I'm writing or a sermon idea in my mind that I just can't quite get out of my head and I'm not able to sleep. So I'll often get up and go downstairs at one or two in the morning and I have a notebook and I'll start writing out notes about the sermon idea in there that that way I won't lose them and I'll have them for later because I know While those thoughts are there, no sleep is going to be happening. And when I'm out there writing my sermons, it's amazing how quickly I get tired, which just goes to show you that my sermons have the same effect on me that they have on all of you. (laughs) Now, it would be easier for me, it would certainly be more efficient to go down to my basement office and write out those sermon ideas on my computer. I could do it faster and I wouldn't have to transcribe those notes from my notebook onto my computer later, but I don't do that for three reasons. First, because I don't want the screen waking up my brain and keeping me more awake. I want to fall asleep at some point. But more importantly, the two other reasons. Number one, I don't think it is wise for myself. I don't see any good reason why at one or two in the morning I need to be down alone, away from all eyes, with a computer late at night. I don't think that's a healthy place to be. That's the wrong time, the wrong place. And also, I would never want my wife to wake up in the middle of the night and even have to have the thought come into her mind, boy, I wonder what Zach is doing down at the computer at 3 a.m. in the morning. That's just not a good place to be. If I want to walk in the light, if I want to be above reproach, I need to take proactive measures everywhere in my life to not be in the wrong place at the wrong time for the care of my soul. For some of us, that might mean not picking up the phone when we have news that would be juicy gossip. For some of us, that might mean not listening to certain songs or taking in certain forms of entertainment that are feeding growing appetites for sin. For some of us, that might mean avoiding the company of, of friends at certain times whose influence lowers our inhibition toward making sinful choices. Whatever it is for you, resolve ahead of time to go above and beyond to protect your character, to be above reproach, to walk in the light. Do it in advance. Reason people, even Christians, succumb to moral failure, number four, because foolish people fail to see what is obvious to wiser people, danger. Verse 7, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. I'm not going to linger long here, but I want to notice with you the lack of subtlety in the temptation that is posed by this woman. She approaches him dressed as a prostitute. She's not coy, in other words, regarding her intentions with this man. She does not endeavor to lure him in with some trickery and then later reveal her true intentions. She just offers it from the get-go. Her aim is immediately clear, and she's loud and wayward. This woman is quite literally the exact opposite of the type of godly woman that that Paul speaks of in Titus women who are to love their husbands and their children, to be self controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. But this woman, she's out at night, she's dressed as a prostitute, and her feet will never stay at home. In fact, she is basically everywhere other than where she is supposed to be. The text tells us she's literally frequenting every street corner. The point is that everyone knows that this woman is bad news and trouble. But not the fool. A person with an ounce of wisdom, a modicum of common sense, sees this woman coming and gets far away from her. But not this guy. Because he's a fool, he is unable to see what would be obvious to a wiser person, namely the danger that this woman represents to him. Which provides us with resolution number four. Resolved to live with discernment. It's easy for us to make fun of the fool, but how often do we walk right into situations and into sins that would have been easily enough avoided if we had simply exercised greater wisdom and discernment? What does discernment look like? I think it looks like wisdom and Christian maturity in action. In other words, as we grow in God's Word and in our personal walk with Christ, our decision-making should change. We should be able to more quickly discern the difference between truth and error, between what is safe and what is dangerous, between what is good and what is harmful. We need to live with discernment. We need to date and marry with discernment. We need to parent children with discernment. We need to live as singles with discernment, to assess our friendships and opportunities and beliefs and choices we are presented with with discernment. Reasons people succumb to moral failure, number five, because they underestimate the aggressiveness of sin. Behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with a bold face, she says to him, and then she goes on. So not only is there a lack of subtlety in her approach, but there is a boldness and there is an aggression in the way in which temptation is pursuing the fool. Notice a, a few things here with me. First, he is the one who walks by her corner, but she's the one who comes to meet him when she sees him. In fact, she, the text says, has been lying in wait for some fool to walk by. And what do you know? One presents himself. She is like a predator waiting on the corner for her prey. She's also wily of heart. The Hebrew word there means she's keeping a secret. She has hidden motives, in other words. One commentator translates that she approaches with hidden intent of the heart. So on one level, she is very transparent in what she's out to do. She comes to him boldly, dressed as a prostitute, very transparent what she intends to do with this man, and yet, on a deeper level, she is hiding from the fool what she really intends to take from him, which is precisely the true nature of sin. It always hides from you what it really wants from you, what it is really going to demand of you. And she seizes him and she kisses him. He's walking by, she sees him, she approaches him, she grabs him, she embraces him, she kisses him. She is described as a predator, she's lurking at every corner, she sees her prey, she falls upon her victim, she is ready to devour this man. And she speaks to him with a bold or a brazen face. In other words, she is shameless in propositioning him. She is aggressive in her pursuit. Sin is like that. Temptation is like that. Remember back in Genesis chapter 4 when God warns Cain that sin is crouching at his door. and That sin's desire is contrary to you, Cain. It wants to have you. If you would not be ruled by sin, you need to rule over it and quickly. It wants you right now. Sometimes you go to the beach on a windy day and you see the waves just rolling in. They're just crashing onto the shore. And usually when you go to the beach on a day like that, the winds are high, the waves are up. There will be these posts that are every couple hundred yards there on the beach, and they've got these flag posts that are stuck on there. And usually on a day like that, the flags will be red. Warning swimmers, stay out of the water. There are likely to be dangerous rip currents out there that are going to suck you out if you get in the water. Stay out. Every time I go to the beach and I see those red flags flying, it shocks me how many people are still in the water. Now, it's gotten so bad in recent years, they've actually instituted a double red flag rule, which means that you are going to get a financial penalty if you're in the water on a double red flag day because we're so dumb, we can't figure out, you're likely to die if you go in the water, please don't. Now we have to fine you in case we have to recover your body. Every summer you see this happening, and every summer you read new stories of swimmers who drowned at Saugatuck or at Holland or at Grand Haven on days where the red flags were flying. And often when you read those stories, you discover that the the people who drowned were guys in their 20s. I wouldn't know anything about that. Won't catch me at a beach. And often these these guys in their 20s are described as strong, fit, good swimmers. Now, the description is starting to fit a little bit better for me as we're going along here. (laughs) Strong, fit, good swimmers. And yet they're in the water perhaps precisely because they conceive of themselves as being good, strong swimmers. They think the water is perhaps dangerous for someone else but not dangerous for me. I'm strong enough. I'm fit enough. I'm a good enough swimmer. I'll be just fine. They underestimate the strength and aggressive pull of the current, and they severely overestimate their own strength to withstand it. That is a deadly combination. Let us not make the fatal mistake of underestimating the strength and aggression and forcefulness of temptation's pull. It is a current that will sweep you off your feet if you are foolish enough to believe that you can resist it in your own power. It will not happen. As we will find out in a few moments, those who thought that are a mighty throng who have gone down to the chambers of death. In other words, many people have believed the same thing. Every one of them were mistaken, and it cost them their life. So resolution number five, resolved to live in humble reliance on God and to put on his armor. What does any good soldier do when they are preparing to go out to the battle? They arm themselves for war. We face an aggressive enemy, a roving predator that wants to devour us. And if we underestimate the power of temptation or if we overestimate our strength to resist it in our own power, we will become victims to our own evil desires. It is an inevitability. We must do two things instead. First, we must confess our weakness and our susceptibility to sin and learn to rely on God's strength in order to live righteously. It has to start there. And second, we must put on the armor that God has given. As Bruce read from us from Ephesians chapter 6 earlier, Christian put on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the peace of the gospel. Take up your shield of faith. Put on the helmet of salvation. Arm yourself with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and do these things praying always in the Spirit. We have a real enemy. We are engaged in a real battle. We have cosmic powers that we are doing battle with, and you have been equipped for this fight with armor so that you can stand your ground. But far too many Christians are walking around with far too little of their armor on, and they are surprised to discover that somehow sin seems to be finding and gaining a foothold in their hearts and in their lives. Put on the armor, Christian. Sin is aggressive, so be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might stand. There is no power of hell, there is no scheme of man, there is no current of sin that is able to sweep sweep us off our feet if we are standing in the strength that God has given. Reason people, even Christians, succumb to moral failure, number six, because sin seems appealing. Verse 13, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. Today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you to seek you eagerly and i have found you i spread my couch with coverings colored linens from egyptian linen i perfumed my bed with myrrh aloes and cinnamon come let us take our fill of love till morning let us delight ourselves with love for my husband is not at home he is gone on a long journey he took a bag of money with him at full moon he will come home she offers to this man what at first might appear to be a great deal all of the indulgent pleasures of sin and none of its consequences. She presents him with all of the appeal of sin, all of its sensual pleasure while emphasizing that there is no threat of discovery. They won't be found out. No one will ever know. Her husband, after all, is gone. He's off on a long trip. He's taking quite a lot of money with him. It's a business trip. There's no chance he's back anytime soon. We're covered there. And they imagine that their current activities are covered by the darkness. Job chapter 24, 15 says that the eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me, and he veils his face. They imagine themselves hidden, these two, which gives them a boldness to pursue sin. That's the case for many people. We are willing to do things when we imagine ourselves to be hidden that we would shrink back from doing if we knew that we were observed. But, of course, there are two problems with that. First is that it is, in fact, seldom the case that we are truly able to hide our actions from the eyes of others. We are far less clever at doing these things than we suppose ourselves to be. And, moreover, God has a way of providentially unveiling and exposing our sin, which is, in fact, the kindness and a mercy of God. The irony of this whole situation in Proverbs 7 is that while this woman and this fool imagine themselves to be obscured by the darkness, that no eye can see what they are doing, this whole scene is being narrated to us by Solomon who says, I looked out my window and I saw. They are seen this whole time by other human eyes. But second, even if no human eye ever catches us in our sin, God always sees Proverbs 5, verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths, including the path that we take late at night, the wrong place, the wrong time, that will lead us right by temptation's door. He sees those paths too. And therefore, we should know for certain that our sin will find us out, and it will find us out before the eyes of the judge of all of the earth whose eyes are the only ones that really matter. So, resolution number six, resolved to live in the fear of the Lord. If we live in the fear of the Lord, two things will happen. First, our appetites will change. Meaning that the sin that seems so desirable to us will gradually grow to appear to us more in its true unsavory form and character. We will see sin for what it offers more clearly. And conversely, the Lord himself will appear to us increasingly as the only source of really satisfying our soul's hunger for joy and satisfaction. We will be willing to be satisfied nowhere else. But second, the fear of the Lord will also keep us from the disastrous notion that we are ever able to truly hide our sin. If we are only afraid of what human eyes can see, it reveals that we have a worldly kind of sorrow. But if we have a true fear of the Lord, we are concerned not only with what those around us can see, but with the one who is able to discern even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Reasons people, even Christians, succumb to moral failure, number seven and finally, because they fail to count the cost. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth speech, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. While this young man foolishly took away home that was going to lead right by this woman's house, he apparently did not come with the intention of meeting and seeking out this woman. Instead, the text tells us she's the one who finds him, she's the one who takes hold of him, and she has to persuade him. But she does persuade him. He goes with her. And that decision cost him his life. Sin is a master of marketing, but the truth is always buried in the terms of service agreement. The devil is quite literally in the details. Because sin promises us joy and life, and yet it leads every single time to the grave. It's where it always goes. It promises fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness and pleasures. That's what sin offers to us, the things that we are designed, in fact, to desire, but that can really only be satisfied in the person of God alone. And so, sure, we might get a little fulfillment and a little satisfaction and a little pleasure and a little happiness for a time when we indulge our sin. But never as much as we were promised and never the kind that lasts. And all the time it is a hollow kind of joy and a hollow kind of satisfaction, something that never really meets the need deep inside our souls that only God can satisfy, a desire that God placed in every human heart that can only be met in Him. No counterfeit joy can replace the joy that is found only in the presence of God Himself. And in the end, pursuing our sin always leads to spiritual death. He did not know that it would cost Him His life. He went where He went. He did what He did because He did not count the costs. So, resolution number seven, resolved through the power of Jesus Christ, to live to pursue righteousness. Solomon concludes, And now, O son, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low. All her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. The whole reason that Solomon is telling this story to his sons is so that they can make a determination in their own heart and in their own mind to determine ahead of time to be righteous, to pursue the path of wisdom, to count for themselves the cost in advance, to see where folly leads, to see where sin and wickedness end, in the chambers of death. And in light of that, To make for themselves and to make for ourselves a commitment for life. To set our hearts to pursuing godliness instead. Which will require having a heart and a mind that submits day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment to the supreme lordship of Jesus Christ. It is only in him and through him that you and I have the power to defeat sin and temptation in our lives. We have no strength In ourselves to accomplish any of these resolutions. It is only in Christ's power that we can stand. And yet, that does not just happen on its own. You can't just give your life to Christ and then step back and, so to speak, let Him take the wheel. It doesn't work like that. There is no autopilot button to be pushed in the Christian life. And this time for choosing that you will commit yourself to pursuing godliness is best made before you are in the midst of a battle with temptation to sin. That is likely too late when you are in the midst of the battle. Determine ahead of time to choose to pursue righteousness. Choose today that in Christ's power you will make it your aim, your resolve, your pursuit in life to pursue godliness. And then ask yourself, whether in your words and in your actions and in your entertainments and associations, in your private moments and in your choices and in your opportunities, are you, am I, living in a manner consistent with that commitment? Not just to avoid moral catastrophe by the skin of our teeth, but to pursue godliness. So from Proverbs 7, and a fool, seven lessons of warning, Seven resolutions for living. May God help us through the power of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to live as such a people, not only for this year, but for a lifetime. Let's pray. Father, we are again so thankful for your word, which sets before us two paths: path of wisdom path that can lead to the only true source of joy and delight, these things that we were created for but that can only be found in You, and also the path of folly that lays before us all of the allurements of, of sin, but that offers us only counterfeit joys and pleasures, things that can never truly satisfy and that will always bring us to death. So, Father, help us to be a people who in our living make it our life's commitment and resolve to pursue Jesus Christ and to stand in the power that you have given, arming ourselves with the armor you have provided so that we can stand against the temptations of the evil one. We need your help to do this, Father, so we ask for it in Christ's name. Amen.